Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. Continuing our journey on the science of happiness, we are up to week number five. I'm going to be straight up with you. This is probably the third time I've sat down to record this because sometimes when you're doing this kind of thing, you sit down, you start recording and you just like blah, 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 blah. And I wasn't feeling it. So anyway, hopefully I'm feeling it now. I'm like freshly caffeinated too. So that will probably help. Um, but I wanted to actually make sure I was in the right headspace for this because the whole topic this time around is on mindfulness. Um, quick disclaimer or information or whatever at the very beginning as well. Remember that everything that I'm covering here comes from the Science of Happiness course that you can find on the edX website. Uh, and that address is literally uh, edX.org, edX.org. If you search for the Science of Happiness, you'll find this. And I will put links to a lot of the articles and videos and things that I'm referencing through today on uh, the Facebook link for this particular episode as well. So if you want to read more, you can. Cool. So mindfulness. I've heard a lot about mindfulness in the last few years. Didn't really know what the deal was. Um, and there's a lot of different approaches to it as well. Some have a more spiritual angle to them. Uh, others just about a mental discipline and that kind of stuff. But this week looks at this idea of mindful awareness and happiness. And my favorite definition that they talk about this time around was, first of all, just looking at mindfulness being a non-judgmental awareness of the present reality. I quite like that. It's being aware of what our thoughts are and what our feelings are and different sensations in the environment and that kind of stuff. And if I look at what was part of the genesis of this podcast, that philosophy was huge, particularly in my interviewing approach to people. But broader than that too, my communication with other people as well and my personal growth over the last few years, I was always very intellect-based, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you've been given a brain for a reason, but it can come at the expense of your emotional intelligence, right? And that is something that I think mindfulness particularly speaks to. You know, how are you feeling right now? Would you know how to describe how you're feeling? How aware are you of the different states that you're in? And particularly when you're in a negative state, how do you respond to that? Um, that's a more of a personal focus because I have found that I don't think our culture handles negative emotion very well. I believe that's a big reason why we medicate people as much as we do, that when sad things happen, you're going to be sad, right? In fact, I was talking to a friend a little while ago that were concerned about someone and different situations, how they were behaving. And I said, well, what's going on with them at the moment? And it turned out that not only had there been a change with their work, uh, that person had also had a close family member who was unwell. And so my response from what I've learned, um, I knew enough to say, well, yeah, they, they're going to be sad. Like, that's okay. They're going to be sad for a while if somebody's unwell and they've had these changes at home and that kind of stuff. I don't feel like that's our, our general response. I think we kind of numb that behavior. And there are some socially acceptable ways of numbing how you think and how you feel and some that aren't. And we tend to throw rocks at those people who try and numb those feelings through drugs and alcohol and other less socially acceptable addictions. And then those of us who get addicted to, could even be things like social media or TV or becoming workaholics or something like that. Those are the people we say, well, at least we're not as bad as those other terrible addicts. But I think in any case, if we are not able to look at how we feel, be able to look at it, acknowledge it and move through it, 
and learn something of the resilience that's built into every one of us, well, we're going to have a less of a human experience than we could have had, right? So that is the preamble. <laughs> and we're going to get into now um, some study that was done by a gentleman by the name of Matt Killingsworth. And I think Killingsworth is a terribly morbid name to have for somebody who studies mental health and well-being. But nevertheless, he's got this project called Track Your Happiness, and you can check that out. Um, I believe it is actually at trackyourhappiness.org. Yeah, there we go. And he's been looking at the correlation between happiness and mind-wandering. And in other words, daydreaming, just when your head is not at where you're at right now. So what they do is send different correspondence to people and find out how they feel, what they're doing, and whether they're mind-wandering about something that's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And he's collected 650,000 responses from 15,000 people. And his discovery was this. We mind-wander about 47% of the time. So in other words, our heads are not in the present moment, being aware of what we think, what we feel, and what we're doing. We're somewhere else in our heads, in the past, in the present uh, sorry, in the past or in the future, 47% of the time. Now, that might sound like a positive thing because if you're going through a negative circumstance, then maybe you want to be imagining a better time or place, something like that. What was really fascinating about this was that mind-wandering is universally shown to make people less happy. So it's even true if they're doing something unsatisfying, like uh, they talk about commuting and we're thinking about something that's either neutral or pleasant. No matter what the situation, when our minds wander from where we are right now, we are overall less happy. And I wonder, this is where I start to speculate, right? There's a certain dissatisfaction when we dwell on where else we could be. If only I was somewhere different, happier, better, or it'll be nice when, that kind of stuff. Because eventually we have to come back to the moment that we're in, right? And we're not where we wish we were, where we think happiness will lie. Because we still bind a lot of our happiness up in circumstance. And that's something that this course has challenged the whole way through. That your happiness, according to science done by uh, UC Riverside, has found that only about 10% of our happiness is grounded in our circumstances. But we believe it's kind of 90%, right? Because usually if somebody's unhappy, we get them to look at their circumstances first. We don't get them to look at their social connection. We don't get them to look at things like forgiveness and, and those sorts of things. So all to say I can get why having your mind somewhere else, which is usually fixated on circumstance change, makes you less happy. So what do we do about that, right? This is where Wendy Hassenkamp comes in. Uh, and she wrote about how to focus the wandering mind. And it really is just a study into meditation. Meditation being focusing on something in the moment. Now, there is a spiritual aspect to this where, well, that can be one part of the focus. There is one more secular approach that just goes as far as saying, let's just focus on your breath. Uh, this whole study is not debating the merits of which approach. In particular, it's just looking to say that even just being aware of your breath means that you have to be in the moment that you're in right now. It's a way of getting you out of living in the past or living in the future. And ultimately, it shows that it improves things like working memory, fluid intelligence, and standardized test scores. So it's pretty interesting, hey? So at this point, it's probably worth getting a little bit deeper into what mindfulness really is and isn't. Um, 
And we'd be looking at something from uh, Barry Boyce here. And he talks about mindfulness as something that we've already got. It's like it's a basic human ability. We've got this ability within us to stop feeling reactive and overwhelmed if only we cultivate it. And this is something that I've been working on in terms of the keynote speaking that I'm preparing to do more of. To show people that actually you have a perfect mind. You have a psychological immune system that we're just not really aware of. And because of that, when we experience negative emotion, we freak out and we wonder if we're going to be able to handle it. And you can just, even as I say that, right, you, you feel that your pitch rise and you start to talk more quickly and you become more anxious and, oh my gosh, and what am I going to do? If you knew, if you had confidence in the fact that your mind had an inbuilt ability to bring you back to balance, when you did go through stressful circumstances, you wouldn't feel the need to escape them. You could be present in them, acknowledge that they were happening, and then address them with your full attention. Because usually we screw those things up, right? Because we're just looking to get out of that situation as quickly as we can. Or maybe that's the way I would previously approach it anyway. So that's a, a perspective on mindfulness from Barry Boyce. Now, he also mentions, by the way, things like sports can also be a, a meditative channel as well for people. Now, on to the origins of mindfulness. Dacher Keltner now steps in, one of the senior lecturers of this particular course, and talks about different kinds of mindfulness techniques. And so one of them is just breathing. In other words, being aware of your breath in and out for a period of time. Um, I did this as part of the course, and it's just a literal process of six minutes sitting and being aware of your breath and nothing else. It is harder than you think, man. <laughs> It is really harder than you think. And yet, what's really cool about it, you remember at the beginning, we talked about just being a non-judgmental awareness of where you're at, is all you learn to do is go, oh, wow, my mind's wandered off somewhere else now. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. And over time, it becomes easier. And this is also where I confess that I've fallen out of the habit of doing this. So, you know, you can be my accountability buddies on that front. Um, there's also... Um, sitting and walking meditations there's something too called loving kindness meditation which is pretty cool that is more just the idea of thinking of the people around you that you know or the wider world and extending thoughts of love and care towards those people and then there's something called a body scan meditation which sounds very kind of star trek right like you imagine this beam just like, doo -doo -doo -doo, kind of thing that's what's the beam sounds like by the way um, but just being aware of your body and sitting there and going, okay, feeling feeling the weight of your body, feeling the weight of your hands, like I'm kind of closing my eyes now and putting myself back into that space and just being aware of the sensations that you're feeling. Again, the idea really just to help us develop a sense of being where we are instead of being constantly distracted. The mindfulness-based stress reduction program is something else that they frequently reference, which was developed by John Kabat-Zinn in 1979. That actually surprised me to realize it's been around as long as it has, but he did it at um, the Massachusetts Medical School. And a 2011 meta-analysis of his approach showed that it reduces symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression. And even for physical conditions like chronic pain, it can enhance well-being. So for John Kabat-Zinn, when he was asked what mindfulness was, he just simply said it's to become awake. I quite like that. In fact, there's a Chinese character for mindfulness, which just means presence of heart. And don't we need that? Don't we need that? Have you had a conversation with someone where you could tell that they weren't really there? 
have you been the person in the conversation and you weren't really there? I would have to confess yes to both, right? I have found it incredibly powerful though to be really present, really in the moment, listening to somebody speak because you can ask far more engaging questions and be far more connected to that person just because you're not thinking about your thoughts, what you're going to say, more being aware of how you're responding to you know, the, the feelings that you're capturing from the other person. We're empathetic beings as well, right? And I, as someone who has been more, again, on the intellectual side of things as well, it's been quite a cool thing to develop to notice actually how much you can detect how somebody else is feeling. In fact, I'll tell you a story this morning. So I hurt my shoulder a little while ago and it's just like a little tweak every now and then. And so I finally, after like two or three months of this, decided to go see a physio. So I've been doing that for a few weeks and um, I went and saw the physio guy this morning and he's quite a bright um, chatty kind of guy so we usually joke around about stuff as I tend to joke around with most people but something was off today I was like man something's not all right you, you know and I found out later on he's like oh I've actually got a couple of ulcers in my mouth right now and that made a lot of sense in terms of how he was you know just I could just tell something wasn't right now I'm not trying to come across as incredibly perceptive here but what I am trying to say is that we've all been in situations where somebody's not quite right but we just don't say anything you know, like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. And you go, no, eh, you're not really, but uh, I'll just let it go. Once you understand where somebody's at, I mean, imagine how I would have felt about it. Oh, this guy's usually chatty and things like that. Now he's not. Is he pissed off at me for some reason? Something else going on? Was he just whatever speculation? Being prepared to actually ask and say, are you, are you all right? And finding out what the reason is created a more powerful ability just to connect and have a good conversation with the guy. So simple example, but it happened earlier today and it was on my mind. So there you go. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, again, talks about um, one of the, I guess, challenges we've got to overcome is that we tend to see ourselves as the stars of our own movie, he said. So everything gets filtered through the lens of I and me and mine. And we're not aware of our connectedness with other people. And that's something that this approach to mindfulness does look to create that we become aware of everyone else around us and also have the ability to live our lives the way they are right now instead of really constantly living in regret or anticipation. Now, onto the benefits, right? Because this is the science of happiness. It's not just the nice ideas. And studies on mindfulness are mixed, but they're mostly promising. So there's various types of meditation practices I talked about, but they increase positive emotions on the whole and life satisfaction. They reduce things like stress and anxiety, pain, depression, um, depression relapse, and even other kind of negative emotions as well. So there is a bit of backwards and forwards on this kind of thing, but overall in terms of the sense of well-being that this creates, yes, there is evidence to prove that it has benefits for our health and well-being. Um, beyond just affecting the mind as well, that uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction program that I talked about earlier on has shown changes to people's bodies as well. So it's helped reduce things like chronic pain, improve psoriasis, which is a skin condition, and even increase Im immune response to things like a flu shot. And it can be as simple as a long exhale uh, increases um, vagal tone. So we talked about the vagus nerve cluster and things like that. So the strength of that uh, nerve cluster um, has been shown just that uh, as a way of calming us down. Pretty cool, right? Now, 
neuroplasticity is a term that's also starting to gain um, some traction. And it's just the idea that your brain can change. That's the real layman's approach. There's pathways in your brain. The more you do a thing, the stronger the pathway becomes and you become better at that thing. It can be a talent. It can be um, communication, whatever it might be. Whatever thing you need your brain to do, it can adapt to it, right? Um, so I'm just trying to look to summarize this kind of stuff here. So mindfulness has basically just been shown to help change the brain in regards to uh, things like memory and emotion and emotional regulation, even reward circuitry and things like that. And then also a reduced fear response through the part of the brain, which is called the amygdala. So quite cool, right? Um, Shauna Shapiro also writes on this kind of thing as well with um, an article about how mindfulness changes the brain, um, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, um, I'm just going to look to summarize this stuff as well because Tracy Picha, P-I-C-H-A, um, Jason Marsh, and um, Huria, oh, geez, <laughs> Jezerai, J-A-Z-A-I-E-R-I, that is an awesome name that I cannot do justice, um, have all looked into deeper studies of how much of a difference this can make. And it can be as short as, say, like eight weeks. Um, in fact, there was one group uh, where, you know, months later was still shown to be having effects of, on health and well-being after a, a kind of a mindfulness-based um, program. So what do you do with it in the real world, right? Um, one of the areas that it's been trialed a lot is actually in education. Um, but... The, uh, there are some uh, results that have been done across a whole bunch of different spheres. So first of all, uh, mindful partners report more sexual satisfaction. Mindful students participate more. Uh, mindful teachers burn out less. Uh, more mindful health professionals burn out less and have more self-compassion. Um, and self-compassion, by the way, is something we are going to touch on in the next week or two, and it is amazing. Uh, more mindful prisoners are less angry, hostile, and moody. Yes, this works for people who are incarcerated. And also, mindfulness helps those with um, PTSD. They've got less symptoms of things like trauma and intrusive thoughts and avoidance and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, Jill Sutty is someone who's looked more deeply into this idea of um, mindfulness at work sorry, mindfulness at school, and um, taught mindfulness to students to create better learning environments. Um, saying in particular, it helps reduce anxiety, social conflict, um, attention disorders, and it also makes students more aware and more curious, non-judgmental and calm. Sounds good to me. Uh, so uh, Susan Kaiser's nonprofit Inner Kids is one of the organizations that tries to bring this stuff into schools. And there was a study of, um, they say fourth to seventh graders. I don't know how old that is. Um, I'm assuming less than 40. Uh, found that mindful awareness techniques had a lot of these kind of desired effects. The students became less aggressive and less oppositional to teachers. They were sent to the principal less often. Um, they also had more positive emotions, became more attentive, optimistic, optimistic, and introspective. So it's good stuff, right? Um, in the workplace, this is one where, again, for me, I look at this stuff as saying I'm glad there's science behind this because it moves things beyond just a an idea or maybe a nice to have or well that's okay for you into something that has a tangible scientific benefit. So Tara Healy has looked into mindfulness at workplaces. And she's talked about how mindfulness at work is about noticing and examining the habits of behavior and thinking and feeling that we've created. 
And I want you to stop for a second too, because when stuff goes wrong at work, how often do we stop to consider not just how we're feeling, but how the other person is feeling? What might have been going on in their world? Have we been aware to see the things that have been happening? Because if we are, it doesn't excuse everyone's behavior, but immediately our ability to not take things personally and resolve things in a healthy way is massively improved. Massively improved. That's been my experience anyway. Um, so she encourages people to create some distance between ourselves and our emotions and simply observe them. That's another um, approach that mindfulness promotes. Just being able to observe. I, I had another friend um, who described it as being like on a riverbank and you know there's this flow coming past you and you're able to just observe what kind of flows past in the stream as opposed to standing in the stream at the time and having the current fighting against you. That's the difference. Instead of just being in it and not even being aware that it's your thinking and feeling that's creating your experience, going, wait a second, taking a step back inside your head and just observing, right? Because when we can do that, we can sometimes have an insight which unlocks a better way of responding. And uh, also, too, they talk about the benefits of cultivating mindfulness by meditating at work and injecting it into everyday experience. So lastly, uh, this week went by a little bit quickly. Quickie, a little bit more quickly. Typical, right? Try and rush it and you mess it up. Uh, Maureen O'Hagan talked about police and soldiers being trained in mindfulness. And uh, one study of marine uh, reserves found that those who trained in mindfulness had better cognitive performances and less stress. And for the police, the goal is to help them be less reactive and more thoughtful, um, more thoughtfully responsive, less aggressive and more assertive. So that is an introduction to mindfulness. And I'd love to know what your thoughts are on this topic as well. Um, again, I know some who have responded when they hear about mindfulness out of um, a negative connotation I might have picked up somewhere. But for me, when I see it as simply cultivating uh, your emotional intelligence, a non-judgmental awareness of where you're at right now. Again, we judge how we feel. Man, have I noticed that so strongly in myself and in other people. Even earlier today, speaking to a friend and saying, oh, you know, I shouldn't have felt that way. You know, well, I mean, what are you going to do with that? I shouldn't have felt that way. So you what? You push that thought aside. You disown it. You shame yourself for it. The best thing that you can do in that situation is acknowledge that that's how you felt. And you can get curious about what the thinking might have been that led to that kind of feeling. Then you can do something about it, right? But to say I shouldn't feel that way and push it out of your head, that's how things pile up over time. That's how we eventually get to burnout and, and don't see it coming. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this topic. As always, you can send them through to me at theandrewcurtisshow at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing your feedback on that and maybe even how you might have adopted mindfulness practices in your own life. But more on the science of happiness is coming up for you soon. Yeah.